0: Well, 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 (laughs) what's up everybody and welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and today we are talking with fellow podcaster, Clint Campbell. Clint is the host of the Truth From The Stand podcast, and this is the first time that we've ever gotten together uh, to do a little bit of a collab here, and uh, today we're doing a straight-up BS session. I mean, there is a lot of uh, uh, BS going on in this episode. We talk about western hunts. We talk about whitetail hunting. We talk about things that we've done when we were stupid and younger. We talk a little bit about everything and I love these episodes because it gives me a little bit of break from the step-by-step strategy. It's just a conversation that you would probably hear at deer camp. So I really love these episodes. Huge Shout out to uh, Clint for hopping on and uh, chatting with us today. But... You know, we got to do a commercial. And before we get into today's episode, I want to chat about Vortex Optics. You've heard me say this a thousand times. And every time I say it, I mean it, right? One hell of a company, hands down, awesome company. They have an awesome product. They have awesome people that work for, for them. They have an awesome warranty, which allows you to beat the shit out of your equipment. And if you break it and it's your fault, they will replace it for free and send it back to you. And if they can't re- replace it or uh, fix it, if they can't fix it, they'll replace it. So it's it's just an awesome company. Awesome company. And uh, I could sit here and just go into all the details, but I think it's best if you guys just go to their website and check everything out, right? VortexOptics.com. Go check them out. Check out their rangefinder, spotting scopes, binoculars, red dots, rifle scopes. They make a lot of optics for the outdoorsman. Vortex Optics. Go check them out. That is the commercial. Now, today, let's get into this really deep BS session with Clint Campbell. All right, on the podcast with me today, Mister Clint Campbell. Clint, what's up, man?
1: What's going on, buddy? Uh, glad to uh, be here with my my nine fingered friend. Uh, <laughs> it's been a long time coming. I've been a a listener of yours for a while. I know we ran into each other in an airport coming back from ATA the uh, the one year, so it just felt like it was a matter of time until we get the chat.
0: Yeah, yeah, and then we did we, not this year, right? But a previous year, we we chatted at the ATA show as well, right? Yeah, yeah, it was a.
1: Yeah, yeah, we ran into each other at the at the booth uh with our our mutual buddy Johnny Mulligan yep. and then we were both catching a flight out of I want to say it was the one that was in Louisville. Yeah, Louisville. Is what I'm thinking. Yeah. Yep. And uh and we ran into each other at the airport. I had a uh, I had some egg whites from uh from Starbucks and I think you had a beer.
0: <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. Oh man, I tell you what, nothing ta- after after that trade show it's just like three or four days. It's just straight intensity, like on point all the whole time. And then you don't like for me. I don't go out drinking like I used right. to at the at the shows. So it's just one of those things where I uh, <laughs> I just crack a beer yeah. and just chill.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I'm the same way, man. It's like that. That's uh, it's funny because people that haven't been, you know, it, it's a great time. You get to see a lot of a lot of your friends that maybe you only get to see once a year or whatever the case is. Um, and there's definitely some time to go out and, and, and have some fun, but it's just, you know, I was usually working a booth at one of the, you know, for, you know, one of the folks I work with or whatever. And, um, so they were long days and you're just dog tired by the time you, uh, by the time you get done. And if you're out hurting yourself in the evenings, man, it makes it for a really oh, long yeah. long day. But it was, it was funny cause John used to, or he still does make fun of me because when we would go to those shows, it's like, <laughs> I have no pro- – and this might come from like my band days of being on the road and sleeping in random places. But I would get like an Airbnb and it was the weirdest Airbnb because I flew in and I was literally just staying in an extra bedroom at this guy's house. Like I walked in at like 3 o'clock in the morning and John's like, dude, he could be a serial killer. Like you don't <laughs> – like you don't know.
0: Yeah.
1: And he was like, how did you sleep? I was like, like a rock, man. I was good to go. Like I yeah. don't even – I don't sweat it. And then when I was leaving, I was sleeping – because I had to switch places, and so I ended up staying at this other house, and it was just, again, I was renting someone's bedroom, and it was this this uh, this couple, these two women, who were obviously married, um, and I roll in, and I'm like, hey, what's up? You know, I'm Clint, and I'm staying at your place, and they're like, cool, your bedroom's in the back, and they were like, we're going to go out to dinner, and I was like, all right, cool, then we'll be back in a couple hours, so I was sitting on their couch with their dog watching a football game, and passed <laughs> out, like, full <laughs> full on passed out mouth open. Like they, they come home at like 10 o'clock or whatever. I'm just like all spread out on their couch with their dog laying on my, on the side of me or whatever. And I'm like, Oh, Hey, what's up guys. And I just go, <laughs> go back to bed,
0: man. I so, tell you that Airbnb game is good if you can find the right place, but man, I just don't think that I could be the person to rent a room in my house out where they have access to the exact same thing as I do. I'd be yeah, weird. Yeah. Well,
1: yeah I don't even like roommates like I never liked roommates like yeah. to begin with you know it's funny because I don't like that scenario for myself, but I don't mind going to stay at other people's like it doesn't weird me out to be like sleep at a random person's house but you know to be fair i've woke- I've woken up in some really weird places when I rubs in the band, so yeah that's, you know, so <laughs> I feel it's, it's the Probably the least of my worries.
0: Yeah. I'm just glad I made it to where I made it most of my days in my 20s. <laughs> it's like, oh, mm-hmm. at least I'm in a safe spot.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a 100% it, man. It's like my wife. People are always like, the last, you know, your wife doesn't get mad at you for taking these trips, you know, being gone for weeks on end to go hunt or whatever. I'm like, look. She used to get phone calls from like random places at emergency rooms or whatever when I was in the band, like that she needed to come pick me up or something like that. I was like, this is, this is really good
0: for her right now. Yeah, right. This is low key. The, The worst thing that could happen to you now is what you, you slip and break an ankle or something.
1: Right, right. Exactly. Which, you know, knock on wood hasn't happened, hasn't happened yet. You know, I think the only time she was really semi worried was, um, was the Montana trip only because that was back country off the grid for two weeks. Um, you know, no service, no nothing. Um, so she was a little on edge for, for that one. So was, was that but, a
0: elk hunt or was that
1: a, a whitetail hunt? Yeah, that was an elk and mule deer hunt. Elk and um, mule yeah, yeah, it was a good trip. It was a couple years ago. I'm sad. I haven't been able to make it back out since it's always kind of been on the, uh, you know, on my plans to do again. Um, but that was just, I have a buddy who lives in, in Montana. Um, he's a killer. He's actually, he was, he won the Turkey, the national BHA Turkey calling thing. He was the tiger King guy that won the whole like thing. Um, he's, he was originally from my hometown Bedford and that's how I, how I know him. And we have some couple mutual friends and, um, we all took a trip out and, you know, three of us drove out 39 hours and spent two weeks out there and living in the mountains and chasing elk. And it was a killer trip. I had probably, I had two really good shot opportunities for on a mule deer and then just couldn't seal the deal. Um, And I had, I went to full draw on two different elk and just couldn't, just couldn't make it happen. The one he ended up shooting, we were standing side by side and that elk was, I think when we finally yardaged it after he, he shot him, he was 26 yards. It was a really weird setup because we were chasing this one elk around. And finally we got in his comfort zone to where he would start to commit to us and he was calling for me essentially. And he was like, hey, I'm going to run up the side of this ridge or I guess it's a mountain out there and get into position to, to call to try to bring him across you broadside so you get, you know, a decent shot. And I was like, all right. And so he went to step back behind me to take off up the side of the mountain. And I just happened to look up and I saw antlers coming. and I just grabbed and I was like, wait, whoa, whoa, dude. I was like, hold up. And he's like, what? And I was like, he's right there. And he was at like 45 yards coming. And there was a down tree in front of us. And he kept kind of moving in, moving in, moving in. And we both went to full draw. I got stuck at half draw for like a hot minute, which, which was terrible and finally got all the way back and he just kept coming straight toward us. And neither of us had a shot and we were both behind this down tree and there was like a big limb in between us. And so if he turned, you know, to the, I guess it would be the elk's left. I had a shot opportunity. If he turned to the elk's right, it was in my buddy's, you know, shooting window. And so we were both at full draw and he just happened to step toward my buddy and he arrowed him, uh, you know, heart shot him. He, we watched him walk away and, and pile up like 40 yards away. And it was a 26 yard shot. So that was a pretty cool trip in the snow, you know, packed out oh, nice. in the dark. Yeah. I wanted to kill him cause he didn't take a pack. Um, we called it no pack Sunday. I took a pack and, uh, on our way out, it was, you know, snowy on the way out and stuff like that. And it was dark and he didn't bring a knife and <laughs> it was kind of a disaster. So, and he didn't bring a light and I was the only one with the headlamp and it died in the first, like 20 yards on the way back so we basically packed out half that thing that night in the dark two miles which was uh type two fun it was like it it was pretty crappy at the moment but it's it's kind of fun to tell the story now
0: yeah for sure man i tell you when
1: because you're from you're, you're from ohio right no, um, I'm from Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, that's in, right. Yeah. South Central Pennsylvania. I live in Eastern PA now, just in the suburbs
0: of Philadelphia. Okay. All right. So, uh, suburbs of Philly. I used to work at, I used to work for a company and one of their sister headquarters was out of King of Prussia. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. uh so we would fly out there every once in a while out of cuz there other there's a headquarters in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and then there's a headquarter in King of Prussia. Uh, is it King of Prussia?
1: Is that yeah, King, Yeah.
0: Yep. King of Prussia. Yep. So anyway, um, we would go into Philly every once in a while and, uh, you know, I did the, I did the run up the stairs of the library, like Rocky. And I did the, Mm -hmm. uh, um, Pat's King versus Geno's, uh, Philly cheesesteak, uh, whole deal out there. And, uh, you know, I did the touristy thing, but that was fun. But, uh, yeah. Anyway, on uh, I went on a, a mule deer trip, right? So it's two guys from out east. I'm from Iowa. He's from New York, and we go to South Dakota, and we ended up killing this mule deer, and the pack out was crazy, and it wasn't like we had to do a ton of up and down. I mean, we, we had to do some ups and downs, but it would be only like 50 to 100 feet of elevation gain at a time, and then come back down and walk a long ways for in flat, but- right. It it was crazy because you you can train for putting a hundred pounds on your back and go for going for a, a weighted pack hike, but you yeah. don't do it for four straight hours. Right? You may <laughs> right. you don't you don't train. You you may train like you're packing something out, but you don't train like you're packing something out. So yeah. I had ninety pounds and I maybe you would train for an hour. Like walk in the circle on a trail for an hour out where I, I live here in Iowa, but right. walking, I think I think we walked three and a half, three, three, three or four miles from where we killed back to the truck with over a hundred pounds. You know, like we two people carried out this gigantic mule deer and all of our gear because we only wanted to make one trip. And I remember when I took my pack off back at the truck, I fell forward because i was competent or i fell backwards how how would that go i can't remember but i almost fell over because i took all the weight off and my body didn't compensate for it yet right. so i just i fell over and i just had to lay there for a while yeah it's like complete <laughs> exhaustion and so i don't know how my body will act when i actually have to someday pack an elk out of the mountains. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it was, that pack was pretty bad because again, like I only, I had the only pack and like my buddy, he's, he's nuts, man. Like we would go on these, I mean, there was one hike we did, uh, I think it was like 16 miles that the one day and it was, there was snow and it was brutal and we would leave like to, you know, head out from camp and he would literally slam a bottle of water. And this is at whatever time in the morning, like three o'clock in the morning, he would take one bottle of water with him, nothing to eat, no compass, no nothing and just go. Yeah. You know, and and just like do 16 miles and like not a problem. Now, granted, his job was he worked for the U.S. Forestry Service out there and stuff like that. So, I mean, his job was being in the mountains for a large part of the year. Um, So he was pretty, you know, well versed and, you know, kind of navigating through. But when we started packing this thing out, it was dark and it was cold enough to where we were like, you know what, let's get a quarter out, you know, let's get a shoulder and a quarter out. He's like, and I think we can probably let it overnight and we'll be fine for the meat as long as nothing gets to it. Now there were like bear tracks and stuff around there and stuff like that. And so we weren't, we weren't really sure how things were going to fare, but we just didn't have anything with us. And so we were like, well, let's get out and we'll come back first thing in the morning, hunter, still hunting our way into the, to, into the spot. And so we didn't even have like game bags. Like we literally just threw a, <laughs> like a hind quarter of my bag, put it on his back I took a bloody a bloody shoulder and just threw it over top of my shoulder. The first mile was straight up because we were down in this canyon. Yep. So the first mile was straight up. And then the second mile was all straight down. So you talk about like burning out like your hammies one way and then burning out your quads the other way going down. Oh, yeah. And then we got in there the next morning, hunted our way into, back into the elk. And this was like – I don't know, man. This was probably one of the best days I've ever had in the timber because it was me and my three buddies and we got to that elk and it was, it was perfectly fine. So we ended up butchering it together. I ended up falling on our way in and jacked up my back, which was kind of crappy, but, um, we got there and we were butchering up this elk and we were pulling meat off of it. I started a little fire and we were pulling meat off of it and we were cooking meat right there while we were butchering up this elk. And we basically just spent the entire day hanging out, butchering the elk, eating a little bit as we went you know, we all laid down after we ate lunch and took a nap, you know, just laying out in the mountains. And it was just, it was one of those things, man, where it's, you know, an experience I'll never forget. Like, I'll take that one to my grave, um, just because of how special it was. And, um, know, the outdoors are important, man. And it's just, you know, it's probably the closest I've ever felt to being alive that I could ever think of. Oh yeah. Yeah.
0: It's, uh, when, when I go to Colorado, um, the last, not this year, I won't go, but the previous two years I went and just the Number one, the deadfall, right? You, you yeah. don't really know how hard your body actually has to work, especially when you're coming from the Midwest to go there until like I trained really hard those two years and I felt comfortable on day one. Like day one, I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. I'm awesome. Day two it's just like, oh, shit. Like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what all my energy was toast on day one. And that was even with a 24 hour just like transition yeah. period where i just yeah. sit up at 10,000 feet and don't do anything maybe walk around you know get camp set up and then right. for the next however many days we're out out grinding and day 1 felt great maybe a little headache drank some water it went away and then day 2 it's like okay and then right when you get ready to leave that last day is like oh i'm feeling good again like i right. i've become acclimated i feel good but now it's time to leave so the yeah. like the last day of the hunt you're actually feeling good but then it's over so right
1: yeah yeah. it's it was I was pretty like I was in pretty good shape for that trip too like actually I probably overtrained a little bit um just in in general like I ended up hurting my foot probably about a month before I was supposed to leave um and I went a little overboard you know and I kind of learned this the hard way because I was doing I do a lot of just like hit workouts in general that's kind of the stuff I like to do Um, but for this, it's like, I was, you know, I was doing all my HIIT workouts, all my like, you know, resistance workouts and all my cardio workouts with like a, a weighted vest anywhere from like 20 to 40 pounds, just depending on the day and how I felt. And I got to the point to where I was then, I then started doing, uh, incline decline, uh, marathon, like, uh, uh, sprint training to where it's like, I would sprint. 200 meters, and then I would rest for like 15 seconds, and then I would sprint 200 meters up the end. And so I started doing that type of training before I left. And I actually ended up becoming too lean for the trip, to be honest with you. Like, I just didn't have, I think I was all the way down to like, I was sub 150 whenever I got to Montana. And when I got back, I was sub 145. Yeah. So it's like, it's one of those things where I think you got to put the right kind of cardio on and, and try to retain some strength because you're going to you're going to deplete yourself on those days because you're just you're going to be at a calorie deficit for most of the trip.
0: Yeah. And that's when when I learned my first elk hunt when I went out to uh, Idaho. Right. So here's what I here's what I did. All I did was lift weights, a lot of weights, did a lot of squats. And I, I, I think I may have put on mass. Right? right. And then I would just run on a treadmill straight up and then stop like basically sprints on a, on a treadmill. And I got up there and I just got my ass kicked, like straight up, got my ass kicked. It could have been that we pulled into the trailhead, got out of the car, like, you know, 18, 19 hour straight drive, drove all the way or got out of the truck, loaded up, got got out of there, no acclimation time, just went, right? Right, right. And then ended up going um, for the second trip or the second trip, like a handful of years later, which would have been two years ago. It was, hey man, how do you, if you want to train for carrying a lot of weight on your back and walking up and down big hills, you can't do anything here in Iowa with, with uh, the elevation, right? You just can't. Right. But I can simulate what I'm doing up there. So I just, I bought this thing called the Outdoorsman. It's uh, yeah. called the Atlas Trainer. You can throw plates on on your pack, and dude. I just walked up and down hills and up and down hills every day. And I was and I didn't necessarily do any real upper body strength training, but it was just hours upon hours every week walking up and down hills, up and down hills and trying to just not necessarily do one straight hour of workout because it's one straight hour of a workout really doesn't simulate eight straight hours of hiking up and down in the mountains. Right. So what I did, I, I just tried to just wear myself out on a daily basis, just keep yep. moving up and down, up and down. And for two years, I did that. And for two years, I thought I did pretty good.
1: Right. Yeah, no, I agree with you, man. It's, I, I kind of was the opposite of you that, that, that year in the in the sense of like. I went too hard cardio and yeah. not enough strength and lost a lot and lost a lot of mass. Yeah. The one thing I did do, you know, there was a fire tower near my, my hometown. And so I would walk the fire tower with like a 50 pound pack on or whatever, yeah. you know, and it was a good, I want to say it was like three miles up and three miles down. So it was a good hike, but it was the same as you where it's like, you know, I would just try to like do whatever physical activity I was going to do for the workout that day, exhaust myself and then not stop. Yeah. And just kind of keep going throughout my day, doing whatever I need to do, no matter how t- tired I was, because I knew that's essentially what every day was going to be. And a lot of it's mental, man. Oh, it's yeah. just like, you, you know, it's um, you hear about people getting boinked. I think it's what they call it in the backcountry or or mount, mountaineering kind of land or landscape where they, you know, it's basically where someone like mentally just checks out like their body, oh, just, yeah. you know, where they can't do it anymore. And they'll just lay down and die in some instances. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because um, they're running on adrenaline, like they'll hear an elk bugle and it's like they're running hard after the elk, and they'll do ten miles in one direction and forget they got to do another ten back. Yeah, you know, and yep. so yeah, that's how folks get in trouble out there, man. Is, is that type of stuff? I t- I'll tell
0: you that was my that was a perfect example of my trip in to Idaho. I did not mentally prepare for the trip, I don't think, and when I got up there and it straight kicked my ass, mm-hmm. I, I damn near just gave up. I mean, a whole bunch of things went wrong, like hole in the tent. It rained, it snowed, shitty weather. I mean, there was times we were in our tent for like 18 straight hours, um, got snowed in, you know, one day and it just sucked. I mean, and then you get out there, you hike and when you're out of shape or where you didn't prepare for that particular activity and I'm walking up and I was so far behind that the other guy that I was with just... I I could tell in his face that he was frustrated, and that made me more frustrated, and it made me want to give up. And uh, it's and the elk were real high; they were far away from camp, and we just didn't. And and I learned that was basically a year where you learn your lesson. And, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, you know what, man, I am going to not. I I don't want that to happen again.
1: So. Right. It's also a good, you know, lesson than just like I mean, it's one of those things where it doesn't matter if it's elk hunting or whitetail hunting or whatever it is, but it's like picking, you know, if you're doing a hunt with with friends or whatever, it's like choosing your hunting partners wisely, right? Right. Um, that's one of the things. Like for me, I know we both have a mutual buddy, Chad Sylvester. And it's like he and I do a lot of whitetail hunting together, and he's probably the only guy other than maybe Mulligan that I would go on a hunt with or do do a hunt with. Um, only because like I, I typically like places that are challenging to hunt and, you know, success rate, you know, may not be the best opportunity, but you could see really good deer. Right. And, you know, it's hard to find guys that are willing to embrace the suck like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and Sylvester's just one of those dudes where it's like we he, we took a flyer the one year and he was like, you want to go do a hunt? I was like, sure. And so we went and hunt, hunted this big woods piece and uh, it was brutal. I mean, we, I saw three deer in 10 days and, and I think he saw three and they were the same three does. I at least saw three bucks. Um, you know, none of them shooters, but, and it was one of those things when we, we got like toward the end of the trip and, and he just kind of looked at me and we were, we were chit chatting about something and he was just like, man, he's like, I wasn't sure how this was going to go. Cause you never know. He's like, and this is a pretty shitty trip. Like, <laughs> He's like, but you get up every morning, like as soon as your alarm goes off and like are ready to run out the door, like to give everything hellfire for the day. Yeah. He was like, and so he's like, I think we can, I think we can jive. And so for, since then it's like, that's, yeah, it's kind of like my road dog when I do, you know, some of these, you know, DIY hunts and stuff like that. If I'm going to go with someone, I usually try to coax him into going. Yeah. Well,
0: i tell you what, man, that's, that's another piece of the puzzle when it comes to like some of these back country or DIY hunting trips is, is you know, not only do you have to have the mental toughness if you're going to do it yourself to get out, you know, to sit through the cold, because as we all know, especially during the whitetail season, if it is raining or if it is brutal cold or if it's, you know, really hot for for me personally, I can sit in the heat and just drip. But if right. it's brutal cold and it's like negative 12 degrees like it was a couple of days this past season, man, that takes some mental fortitude to get over. And if your hunting partner doesn't do that, and he's not the same as you, then that can be an issue, right? Yeah. So.
1: Yeah. No, 100%, man. Like, that was, I was out in your neck of the woods this year during that cold snap that yeah. happened, because that was, like, right at the beginning of November, right? It's, like, like second week in November, I think, or yeah, something like that? Yeah, the
0: 12, I can just remember it was November 12th, I woke up, yeah. I looked at my uh, little thermostat, and it said negative, negative 11 outside, or something like that and yeah yeah you know it's one of those days where you just step out you inhale and your your chest is, just hurts
1: <laughs> yeah yeah no i yeah i remember i remember that day um <laughs> it sucked um it, it was interesting because i was out there solo i mean john of course lives out there and he wasn't too far away from the, the public i was hunting but i was staying by myself on that trip so it wasn't like i had a, had a hunting buddy and it was uh, like challenging to on those kind of shit cold morning days that were just like, and when I say cold morning, I mean, dude, you know, it's like, that was like abnormally, like freakishly make you want to just stay inside all day cold. But it was one of those things where it's like out of stater, like how I'm only going to draw a tag once every four years, if I'm lucky, maybe, maybe five, you know what I mean? Now that it seems like it's getting harder to draw. And it was just one of those things where I was, you know, I'd be damned if I was going to sit all day. I mean, it's one of those things too, where you know, adopting just more of a mobile approach to where it's like, I just started honestly, like on certain days when it was like super cold out, I would just get down and move and just hike and just cover ground and scout until I found like the next set of hot sign and then set up. And then it would usually be enough to warm me up to where I could stay warm for a couple hours until I'd have to get down and do it again.
0: Yeah. That's a fact, man. Um, let me ask you this. Right. So I've been I've been doing a lot of scouting on a, uh, a big piece of public near my house lately. And just my experiences with, you know, with public land throughout the years, you know, there's only a handful of guys
1: mm-hmm.
0: that what I would consider, I don't maybe not grinders because you can grind in different ways. Right. But the guys who go the extra effort because so, and this is a perfect example. So I'm scouting this piece of public uh, a couple months ago or last month and I see boot prints, I see tree stands and then about a mile back, it just stops and it's Mm -hmm. right where the deer sign starts to pick up and everything gets real good, but everything stops. No more tree stands, no more boot prints, no more nothing right and here i am going why are these people not coming back this far all they have to do is walk another 200 yards and they're going to be in some of the best spots so let me ask you this from your time that you spent on public land why do you think that people just give up at a certain spot and don't go any further
1: i mean i think i think one you know I think there's a part of people where it's like, they feel like they've done enough, like they've earned success. Right. And everyone kind of has that point where you feel like, Oh, I've done enough. Right. This is, this is what I needed to do to try to accomplish, accomplish my goal. I think that that's one thing. People just have different shut off valves. Right. And I I think that that could be a, a reason why I think the other thing too, is, is that, You know, folks, I think sometimes, you know, depending on how long they've been doing it. And there's been there's plenty of guys that I know have been doing it a shorter amount of time than some other guys that I know have been hunting for a long time that they sometimes don't know, like, really what they're looking for. Right. Um, Especially on public. I think you have to kind of take it's just one of those things where there's so many facets of, of, of public that are going to influence what you're going to see. Right. And so I had an example like what you were talking about. There was a new piece of public that I walked onto this year I'd never been to. And I did exactly kind of what you're talking about. Like there was actually a food source uh, that went some private. So I was like, I wanted to go over there and see what was in the what was in that food source. And so I went over and checked it out, as you would expect in Pennsylvania, a bunch of ladder stands all around it. Right. I mean, they were literally no more than 50 yards from one another. Right. I started walking up this ridge as soon as the terrain got challenging a little bit and it started getting thicker. Right. And harder to navigate through. All the all the human sign went away and all of a sudden all the deer signs started showing up and it wasn't that far it was exactly like you said, it was like, maybe it was maybe 200 yards. And I think people just get kind of lulled to sleep with what they want the deer woods or, or the scenario they want to happen versus what will actually happen in order to be successful. Right. And so everyone, I think a lot of times folks get kind of enamored with this idea that like I'm going to set up here and like, I want the dream scenario of this buck walking through this funnel into this spot where it's like, someone's been hunting that funnel for 10 years. Any mature buck in the area knows that, and he's going to skirt it by maybe 50 yards. You know what I mean? And so it's just kind of like understanding that it's those small moves to put yourself in a position that it might not really look that good. Right. It's like you hear guys all the time say, like, I walked into a spot and it looked Bucky. Well, is it because it looked good or was it because there was really good sign there? Right. And then the second part of it is, is like, well, was it sign that is close to betting cover that you're actually going to see something during daylight? Or is it sign that is further away from betting cover that if you play your cards right, you might get you might get an opportunity at last light, you know? And I think that that's the part that people kind of like don't fully think through. Right. I, I'm sure there's a little bit of sign, like in some of those places where those stands were, cause there was with the, where the stands that I had found. Right. But as soon as I saw it, I was like, this is all nighttime sign. Like there's not shit walking through here that has any age on it, you know? And so why spend any time there? But some folks just want to see deer too. You know what I mean? And so, and that's part of the reason why too, it's like, you know, if it's in a spot where they're going to get traffic and see deer, then maybe, maybe willing to sit down and put down anchor there. And that's fine if that's what makes them, them happy. Um, but I want to see the right deer, not a bunch of deer. Is kind of the way I approach it. Yeah. And I think that that's the mentality like you, you know what I mean? It's like, you're looking for the right deer, not a bunch of deer. So you're willing to walk that extra 200 yards, right? To the guy that stops short at that 200 yard mark, it's like a deer is a deer is a deer to him or her. Yeah. Right. And I think that that's part of what it is.
0: Yeah. It, bl- it blows me away. Uh, especially when there's people who put out, they put the same amount of time, into hunting but -hmm. their effort and and, and again this is all relative right we don't know what everybody's goal is right but for me i'm sitting here on a, a couple of the farms that i hunt and i'm watching these guys go to the tree stands that they've been sitting in for the last x number of years a long time and here i am i have one two three tree stands that are that are let's just use last year for example three tree stands that were already hung before the season started and i used two of them everything else every day was a different move set up tear down move set up tear down you know all that stuff being mobile but i'm i'm flanking just like you said i'm flanking their positions because the deer have educated themselves on and it is it is hilarious i i can remember one year i'm watching this Big eight pointer. He's a three-year-old. You know, I wasn't interested in shooting him, but he walked in between me and I could, through my binos, I could see the guy and he didn't even have a clue that this buck was there. I'm watching, I'm watching him and this buck walks up the ridge. I was higher on the ridge. This guy was down lower and he he came right in between us, a little bit closer to me. And (laughs) I just watched him and this dude didn't even pick his head up. So... That right there tells me that it's just like, if it, you know, if it's not right in front of me, I don't, I'm here for maybe some other reason than at this point right, than, right. than trying to kill the biggest, baddest buck on the farm.
1: Right. And it and, and looked to each, to each their own. I yeah. think as you were talking, man, it made me, it made me think of something that, you know, one of the things that I think just in my whitetail journey, if you will, and, and it's hard to overcome, I think just to, you know, depending is, um, sometimes we're victims or, you know, captives of our own past success, right? And, and what I mean by that is like, you know, those stands that I walked by, or maybe the stand even stands even that you walked by, someone had success there once before. And especially when you're on public land, it's not like hunting, you know, your back 40 or, you know, a, a farm or whatever that things are kind of cared for, you know, and I won't even say meticu- meticulously, but just regularly, right? And so, and the reason I say that is because, you know, there's a lot of folks in PA that will complain about the public and public land in Pennsylvania that doesn't hunt good. And, you know, there's no deer on it and, and, and all that stuff. Right. Which is all complete BS. But the reason is is because they've had success in a stand once, twice, three times, whatever it is in the past 20 years. And they continue to hunt that stand. Well that stand produced at one point because the habitat and terrain that were all kind of coming together in that area probably made for it to be a spot where deer were going to funnel through, or we're going to spend time. Right. Fast forward 10 years. You know if it was a clear cut edge of a clear cut or something like that, well, that clear cut's garbage now, right like it's not it's no longer habitat deer are willing to use, and so the habitat has now changed which which you know means that you need to start making changes in in, in a way you're going to set up maybe, maybe look for the same features and set up somewhere else. It doesn't mean that those wouldn't work somewhere else, but that particular area is no long holds the same value in the deer's mind, and I think that's the one thing too is that people get kind of beholden to a successful spot. It's like I shot a big deer here once that means I should be able to do it again. I just don't believe in that kind of thinking. I feel like the best reason for me to move on from another, from a spot is because I've had success there. Cause I'm going to, if I, if I hunt that spot, I'm going to have the expectation of the same thing happening. And I'm going to fall into bad habits of being complacent and not pushing myself and not being as as aggressive as I would like to be. And so for the most part, I, I a lot of years don't even hunt the same properties from year to year. Uh, as far as public goes, uh, last year, there was only one public piece that I hunted that was the same from the year prior and I hunted it twice. Um, and that's just kind of how I, it, cause for one, I know myself, like I will fall into like that habit of familiarity and the way I keep myself from doing it is I just don't go back to those places.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm to a, I'm to a, a kind of a strange point in my life now where I've been hunting whitetails for a very long time. And yep. the last four years, I've tagged out in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, and I—I I don't want to say I'm getting bored with it, mm-hmm. but my—I'm very passionate about whitetails. I get geeked out. Like I'm already—I already got my tree stands. Some of my tree stands up. I yep. already have well, my trail cameras out. I'm—I'm uh, I'm digging through onyx every single day. You know, like I, I'm a nut, yep. just like the rest of us. Yep. But there's something that like i don't know what i can i can't really explain it i am my my ideology is kind of changing like mm-hmm. i just
1: am not I'm, you're looking I'm, for the challenge and an adventure like it's it there's more behind more to it than just pulling pulling back the bow
0: right is a, what it comes a, to a little bit of that but see like i'm the kind of guy who says who says man i i I think that everybody should be able to shoot what they want. If it makes them happy, shoot a spike, whatever, whatever. I'm just getting to a point now where I think it's a little bit of what you said, where there's so much that I haven't done yet that I want to do. And I can always Mm -hmm. come back to whitetail hunting. But then there's this one category that I really haven't been successful at. So the last four years I've tagged out. But I do not consider myself successful yet, a successful hunter. Because, Why is that? Uh, it's because I feel that I should be able to uh, – What I, my idea of a successful hunter is, okay, you can go kill a doe, right? Mm-hmm. And this is – let's just uh, stick with the realm of where I live here in Iowa. Okay, yeah. I know I can kill a young buck, right? I can hold mm-hmm. out for a mature deer. I can put myself in the, in in the positions, but I really haven't been able to, I guess two years ago I connected on a deer uh, on a hit list deer, Mm -hmm. but I never have been able to say I'm going after buck a, and I'm only going to go after buck a, and I'm going to, I'm going to go for him. So there's part of me that this year wants to just pick a deer and do it. And then once I can, once I check that off my list, then I can say, you know what, now it's time for me to go try something different. Right. Like focus, spend more time out West or spend more time bouncing from state to state. I don't know. I just feel like this whole, there's this, there's this idea out there that people say, oh, he's a good hunter. Well, he, well, I think that's bullshit because I think that person is a good hunter in their environment. And the whole the whole topic of you know oh dude this dude's the, one of the greatest hunters of all time, whatever right? I, right, I, I get right. I get so frustrated with that.
1: Yeah, I mean look, man, I think there's a lot of guys and and you you know them as well as I do that are just like guys who I look at that and I don't say that they're the greatest hunters of all time or anything like that. I look at them and just say they're savages, man, and I have a lot to learn from them. There's a yeah. lot I can pick up from them. You know what I mean? And it's all oh, the yeah. usual su- suspects that you and I both know. It's the End Faults, it's the Andy Mays, it's you know the guys like that that are just Killers, man, you know, um, but the thing is, is like each one of them would tell you, you know, or tell anybody they were talking to that they've had as much failure, if not more oh, failure yeah. than the average hunter, because they've had to put themselves out there more often and and fail to learn. Right. And that's really the only way to 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 make that happen. But I totally get what you're saying. man. like that, for me you know, I will, you know, it's, it's really weird. Cause I grew up hunting. Like I grew up in a hunting family. Pa- Pennsylvania has a big hunting heritage. It was a birthright. Like when I turned 12, it, there was no question what I was going to be doing. You know, I, my dad started taking me out whenever I was a kid, probably when I was like 10, I think is like my first memory of actually going on a deer hunt. I'm pretty sure if this is the hunt, I remember I fell asleep on the ground. Cause I was so tired and so cold <laughs> and, and curled up in a ball and slept, um, which probably didn't think he would, he probably didn't think I'd make much of a deer hunter at that point. Um, but then I went off and did music for a bunch of years. Right. And music, I kind of, you know, toured and did whatever. And it, it just became one of those things where I fell out of love with music, you know, cause I just, it, it was just, I, I burned out. Yeah. And I actually walked away from hunting for probably like nine years where I didn't, I, I did one hunt in Alaska and we moved back to Pennsylvania and it was in, 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 look, people can hunt with whatever they want, a gun, slingshot, whatever's legal. I'm down, you know, for you to do whatever. But for me, like gun hunting just didn't trip my trip my trigger necessarily, and so when I moved back to Pennsylvania, I was like 30, and a buddy of my uh, father-in-law introduced me to bow hunting, and I like and that was the thing that I fell back in love with because like I wasn't getting what I needed from the other forms of hunting necessarily. Like I liked it, I enjoyed it, and I would go do it, but I wasn't passionate about it. As soon as I found bow hunting, that changed. And then I kind of get what you're saying, where it's like. You know, for me, it's just seeing different stuff and being challenged. And that's really why I started doing like all DIY out of state hunts, because, you know, I looked at some of these guys that I, you know, look up to that I think are, you know, good hunters I won't say they're the, you know, the best ever, cause that's, you know, subjective, but they're guys that I think do a really good job. And like, for me, like if I were to ever classify myself as anything being even re- remotely good, I have like a couple criteria. One is I need to be able to kill deer out of state on, on public land of like a certain caliber, you know, and like, uh, Pope and young or better. Right. And then the other one is, is start killing deer in the early part of the season in, in October. Um, to me, those are like two things that I see guys that really get it done well, that I look at and go, man, that guy, like he's getting it done. Like those are two things that I often see that they're doing. And those are just two goals that I set for myself. And so I do that, set those goals for myself. That way there's something that I'm continuing to have to try to go after. Um, just because I work better whenever I have, when I, when I'm, when I have goals to kind of shoot for.
0: Yeah. Yeah, man. Uh, let me, how old are you? I'm 42, 42. Okay. I'm 39. I'll turn 40 this year. And I don't know where you are in your life, Mm -hmm. but in the past year, really since i turned 39 knowing that 40 is coming and i don't know why 40 is such this number for me like right it's this it's this big deal for me and i don't know why i don't really care but this this it's hit me in the last year where it's just like dude you're you're starting to go like technically you're starting to go downhill right Right. you're you're at if you're not at the peak now like your peak was ten years ago, or it, that, that whole—you <laughs> right. know what I mean—like not only physically, but everything in life, right? R- right and right. I'm to this point now where I need to start checking off boxes, Yeah. right? Because I'm not going to be able to go on a—you know—when I'm 60 years old, I'm and I may have better finances then, but when I'm 60 years old, I'm not going to be doing some the shit that I was doing in Colorado last year. Right. It will be, I don't care how good a shape you are when you're 60, it's going to be tough. Right. Especially if you're, you're not living in Colorado or wherever, wherever that is. But I just, I see myself saying, okay, get this hard, difficult stuff. These check boxes done. That's what I'm like really thinking about these days. And not necessarily thinking about whitetails per se, because I know I can always fall back on whitetails.
1: Right, right. Now that makes sense, man. Cause I mean, look, I'd be lying if I said I haven't had some of those similar thoughts. Right. Cause I mean, it's just like, it's a fact of life, man. I mean, I, I'm still in good shape. I get up in the mornings and I work out and whatever. But I mean, there's still things like certain days when I'm doing something where I'm like, man, three years ago, this wasn't nearly this hard. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's apparent, you know, and there, there is a time stamp for everybody. You know, what I mean, whenever these things, you know, these more challenging things that we enjoy become a little bit too challenging, you know, if you will. And that's why I always say, you know, because I'll get the question, you know, at times like, because we have some family property back home, you know, it's probably close to like 500 acres between like the couple of different properties that, you know, our families own and stuff like that, that I could hunt if I wanted to. And, you know, I have in the past and they'll ask, you know, why don't you ever hunt your family property? Like you've got private property hunt. Why don't you, why do you, you know, why do you hunt all public? And I'm like, because there's a day that that experience will be new for me because I won't be able to go out and hunt, you know, some of these places that I enjoy hunting the way I want to hunt them. Right. And I want to squeeze every ounce of life out of those things first. Yeah. Before I'm required to go fall in line with this other way of hunting that will fit my lifestyle better whenever I'm older. Yeah. You know, and so that's kind of how I look at it. Cause you know, as good examples it was my dad and I were supposed to do a Colorado elk hunt this year. We were going out to see our buddy, uh, Adam Parr. We were, I was going to go out and pay him a visit. And, uh, my dad actually wanted to go to a, an outfitter and I just, I didn't want to do it. And, um, uh, and so we kind of settled on something of what, that he would be able to do and that I would, I would still enjoy doing cause there was public nearby. And, uh, and he, and he just straight up told me, he's like, I just can't, my body can't take it. Cause I was trying to get him to do like a wall tent in the mountains, like the, the whole nine. whole <laughs> nine. Like, uh, my dad is in his, uh, mid sixties. Okay. Yeah. And uh, he's still in good shape. You know, he works every day, and he's got a somewhat physical job that he does. You know, he's 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 an old old farm boy, so he can still get out and get after it. But you know, the body just doesn't respond like it used to. And so he's like, I'm not sleeping on a floor in a sleeping bag. Like he's like, I gotta have like some level of like comfort for me to be able to do this. And so we you know we compromised and found a a ranch that we could go to to where he would have you know about 800 acres of private to hunt with some access trails to use side by side and. And on the backside of that private was a bunch of public that, you know, I could go gallivant off into and get my kicks, you know, and so, um, you know, and so that to me was really kind of like the, I won't say eye opening, but it made me stop for a moment and recognize like how lucky I am to be physically able to do some of these things I like to do, not to take them for granted and continue to do them for as long as I possibly can until, until my body just tells me that, that it can't anymore. Yeah. Um, just cause I love it way too,
0: way too much. Yeah. There's uh by the way, there's probably listeners right now who called in their head, listening to me talk and go, Oh, that guy's a pussy. <laughs> I'm, fit, <laughs> I'm 55 or 60. I'm still doing all that shit. And I'm like, okay, right. I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: right. Well, Hey man, it's like, you know, it, 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 and the thing is, is like, I think what you're doing though is, is, is prudent. Right. Because you know, the person who's 55 saying that guy a pussy it's like well when you're 55 you might feel differently because you don't know what you're going to fu- you don't know what your body's going to feel like in in 15 more years yeah you know what i mean like you know so you're you're planning you're hoping for the best planning for the worst you know what i mean it's yeah. like and at 55 if you can still get after it man it's like i have no doubt you will be you know what i mean but it would be foolish to say that well i'm going to be in perfect health when i'm 55 and i'll still be doing these things it's like you should make a plan to you know don't put off today what you or don't put off till tomorrow what you can do today. I guess is the is dude,
0: the same. That the, there's no truer words than that. You know, I, and I I bring this up every once in a while on this podcast, and it's uh, me basically wasting my twenties. I still <laughs> I, I still did my my hunting, but I look back at my twenties, and this is this is definitely a message that I'm going to spread to my kids. Where, yeah. dude, all I did was drink and party. I mean, yep. I like eleven years of my life, even up into my early thirties, I just wasted. I should have been out climbing mountains. I should have been out experiencing all this life, but instead all I did was, you know, work my 40 and then go chase tail and get as drunk as possible. And yep. I look back at those days and I'm just like, Jesus, man, 11 yep. years, 11 years. Just think of what, if, if I could go back and tell myself, I dude, you're, you're getting ready to waste 11 years of your life. You're going to regret yep. it. You need to go do something else, but I take that and now I'm going to tell my kids. Right. So I, I guess it's more of a, a learning moment.
1: Yeah. It's, it, I mean, I think anybody looks back at certain points in their life when they, you know, they made less than great decisions. Right. I think everyone, <laughs> I think everyone is guilty of that, I mean, I was in a band for God's sakes. You know what I mean? It's like, I made plenty of bad, bad decisions. I mean, I was doing what I loved doing, you know, but I also kind of look back at those moments and go, You know, not that I regret being a band because it was, it was amazing. I got to live out a childhood dream, did everything I wanted to do. You know what I mean? It was like, I got to meet guys that were my idols that I had posters of growing up and work with them. I mean, it was, it was super cool, but I also look back at it and I think like, man, I should have been living in a van, (laughs) like just traveling all over the place and hunting and snowboarding and just, you know, living off of nothing and having nothing and not caring. Um, and maybe that's a little bit of revisionist history. Maybe that's me now being 42 going like, man, this place is crazy. Work sucks. I'm out of (laughs) here. You know what I mean? Like it might be a little bit of that too. You know, just the responsibilities you get when you get older and just wanting to be able to, you know, relinquish them for a period of time. Um, but that's kind of how I'm the same way, man. I I tell my daughter the same thing, you know, I'm like, be your own person, you know, like do your own, do your own thing. Don't, don't be beholden to other people's ideas of what you should be. And yeah. it makes you happy to go live in a van for three years and snowboard or whatever, and eat ramen noodles, then like go do it. Cause yeah. you know what the real world in a, in a life sucking job will be here waiting for you when you come back. <laughs> what do you, what do you do for a living? <laughs> um, I, mean, I was talking tonight, but I, I actually work in marketing and advertising uh, in the pharmaceutical biotechnology kind of space. Yeah. Um, and I work for a really good company. I mean, they're good, they're good folks, great people. Um, you know, and I have, unlimited paid time off so i can go hunt as much as i'd like to as long as my my stuff's covered and whatever but at the end of the day it's still one of those things like if you ask me it's like would you rather be living in a van hunting and and running the mountains every day or working even with the great people that i work with it's like i'd rather be in a van with nothing running the mountains every day oh yeah (laughs) you know what i mean so um it's just it's just one of those things man where it's you know it's a passion and i would give anything to be able to do that all day every day but you know, I will say this is that there's always trade-offs for it, right? Like, you know, you work in the outdoor industry. I I have plenty of other buddies that work in the outdoor industry and people always see it with rose colored glasses. And I've had a nice opportunity to have a peek behind the curtain and it's not necessarily all, you know, rainbows and unicorns. So, um, you know, that's why for me, it's like, I'm pretty happy where I'm at. You know, if I'm being, if I'm being truthful, I got about as good of a, good of a setup as I could, as I could have, I get to have my fun. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and things and, and, and be able to do the things I want to do. So,
0: yeah, absolutely, man. Well, that's cool. Um, so, you know, we've kind of been all over the place on this episode. I want, I want you to tell me a story now. I want you Ooh. to tell me a story of, I don't know, like an oh shit moment. This it it doesn't even have to be hunting related. Just tell me a cool story. Um, all right something tell me okay. something.
1: all right so we're, we're gonna go since we've been all over the place we're gonna go to the band man because the band has some good stories <laughs> I'll, I'll give you two stories <laughs> all right one one's banned and one's just like how the hell did i end up here type of story um so we were we were playing and getting ready to uh sign a record deal um we were well, actually we lost our first record deal. This is a crazy story. The this Cliff Notes version is we got signed, we went to a bar, a bar brawl broke out. <laughs> there was a knife that was pulled. The and our guy had a knife pop, pulled on him. We lost our record deal. <laughs> like so that is that is the what? end of that. Let me just story. let me just
0: real quick. Were did you play in a metal band?
1: The it wasn't metal per se, um but it was rock. It was, you know, we Heavy. had guys and yeah, it was. Okay. I mean, the guys that were in the band were, um, you know, one of the guys, the one guitar player, he was in Nine Inch Nails for a while and Ministry and and stuff like that. And then the singer was actually the second singer from Drowning Pool. He quit Drowning Pool and joined us. This guy Jason, um, and so that was kind of like the 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 circle. I mean, the music was probably more Filter, Nine Inch Nails meets like Soundgarden type stuff. Is probably more what it was like. Okay. Um, so that was kind of crazy. We lost our record deal. So. We didn't lose our management or our attorney and all that stuff. So we still had like a team or whatever. And so they were working on trying to like fix our, not fix our image or whatever, but that, the AR guy was kind of funny because he was like, man, 20 years ago, you know, we would have like an escrow account to get you guys out of jail out of every city you went to. And we'd make sure they would write <laughs> articles about it He's like, cause this would do wonders for record sales. But he's like, in the climate we live in now, he's like, you guys are a liability and we can't, you know, you know, be part of this because we'll spend more on attorney fees than we will in re- getting record sales. So our lo- our lawyer and our management company were setting up uh, some showcases for us, and so we were coming to New York to play um, this place, this little place called Arlene's Grocery, and it was basically it wasn't a big venue. I think it held like maybe a hundred people or something like that. Um, and It was basically just an industry show. It was like a bunch of record labels, a bunch of management companies that were potentially willing to partner with our management group to like get us. You know off into the right let us ride off into the sunset and we get there and our band like is kind of a mess right like we're like we're good players and we're good but like i would say there was a little problem with the bottle and stuff like that like (laughs) with some members more so than others and so we would usually all we would always be able to hold it together like for the show and we had a running rule like you weren't allowed to have any more than like two shots and two beers before we walked on stage that was like this that was the rule for the band because not for anyone else other than our drummer. Um, cause the one I met this guy, I was at a show watching him play and, uh, he ate so much acid at that show that he fell off the back of his drum riser at the hard rock that was in the middle of the set. <laughs> right. So that was how I met him. Um, and so he was a little nuts. And so that rule was for him. And so we got on stage, we played, we killed it. It went great. We're talking to like, no, this is like. 2004 maybe 3-4 something like that and this was like when Linkin Park was huge and like they just broke and like they were selling tons of records and all this stuff and Linkin Park's management was there and a bunch of other like uh, I think Stain's manager was there and like a bunch of other like big management companies and, uh, and a bunch of record labels and so we're talking to some people and our, our attorney comes and gets me because she would always come get me because I was usually the one who could at least find a coherent sentence if you gave me, you know, a flashlight in two hands, you know what I mean? I could at least keep it together to have the conversation with like the important people. And so I was talking to some record company guys and they always wanted to talk to our singer though because he had a gold record to his name and, you know, had been signed before and whatever. And so I talked to these guys and, and they were like, hey, will you um, grab Jason and send him over? And I was like, sure. Well... I walk over to get Jason, and this is like maybe an hour after we played. And that dude goes from like zero to sixty. It's like he's stone cold sober, and then he's like a raging lunatic in like thirty minutes. And so I send him over there, and he's like, "Where are they at?" And he's like this Southern dude from South Carolina. He's got a drawl when he talks and all this stuff. So I go to send him over. I'm like, "Hey, they're outside, right out front, just down the stairs." He's like, "All right." So he walks outside, and there's a staircase to like the in the front, and then there's a ramp to the left for like wheelchair access, and there's another staircase to the right. Well, he walks outside, didn't see the stairs and just stepped off the end of it like he was walking on water and did a face plant smashed like right in front of all these record execs, gets up, blood running down his face. He's just like, hey, man, I'm Jason. How you doing? And that was like his introduction to like these record company folks. And so they thought we were nuts. Meanwhile, my drummer was projectile vomiting all over the bar. While, I mean, marijuana wasn't legal yet in New York. I don't know if it's illegal now. And he was walking around the bar smoking joints. And then, you know, it was like four o'clock in the morning at this point. And we finally got thrown out. We took a cab to the airport. Some things happened there that I won't necessarily incriminate myself. But we managed to get into the airport and it was closed. And then I met this dude at the airport. It was a homeless guy that was living in like the uh, construction zone of the airport. And I was just like out of my mind at this point. And uh, he's like... You know, he kept telling me he was um, uh, Ray Charles. Ray Charles had died like two months prior to that or whatever. And he's like, hey, I'm Ray Charles, man. I'll help you with your your music career. I was like, cool, Ray. I was like, you got a place to sleep, man. I'm, t- I'm I'm beat, man. I'm a little little busted up. I need a place to crash. So he took me to his bum squat underneath like this construction zone at the airport. <laughs> I ended up falling asleep in this guy's bum box and slept there in the morning. And I was like, hey, man, I got to get up at like six to catch a flame. I set my cell phone alarm. Don't let me sleep past it. And so, he, dude, like clockwork, you know, Ray Charles got me up at 6 a.m. I walked to the terminal and uh, flew home from Orlando and slept
0: in a bum squat. <laughs> the old Ray, hey, I'm Ray Charles. Uh, he
1: probably he probably wasn't even blind. No, he wasn't. <laughs> not only was he not blind, he was white. So it's like he was there was no like resemblance of Ray Charles whatsoever.
0: Oh, that's comedy. Um, that is comedy. Oh,
1: yeah. So that was like I would like to say that those were rare occasions. Um, but those were pretty often if I'm being, if I'm being honest with you, um, you know, I worked at this rock and roll bar that was just crazy too. Like on the side, I, I would like do sound or I would book gigs and stuff like that. And like my buddy who owned it, this guy, Will, like he would just get so lit up at the bar and he would sit at the end of the bar and just take all of his clothes off and play mega touch. And people would come up and be like. Hey man, like there's a naked guy playing mega touch. And I'd be like, yeah, I know, man. What should we do about it? It's like, I don't, I'd be like, are like, man, I don't know. It's like you work here. Can't you do something? I'd be like, yeah. I'd be like, what do you want to do? And they'd be like, well, let me talk to the manager. I'm like, sure. You, you want me to point him out? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, he's that naked guy sitting right down there. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, his name's on the front of the building. You're gonna have a real hard time having him put his clothes back on. Oh saying, buddy. You know?
0: That sounds a lot like but, my twenties especially yeah, the, the four years, my four years of college and about the f- five years after college, just, yeah. just a mess.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was like that all the time, man. I mean, that was a good 10 years, uh, you know, of, of just like craziness, like being at that bar, being at shows and, and, uh, you know, and, and working in music and stuff like that. But, you know, people will ask me often, like, you know, do you ever miss it? And I'm like, I don't really. And, and the reason is, is like, like the best feeling ever was like when you wrote a killer song and then you got to play it on stage and we got to play some killer stages, you know, like 5,000 people like in an arena or whatever. And like, those were awesome experiences. And I tell people, you know, that I've never had an adrenaline rush close to that as the only thing that the only thing that actually beats it is when a big white tail approaches your tree. I was like, and that's the honest truth. I was like, the only replacement I had for that adrenaline rush was hunting white tails with a bow. Yeah. So, Um, which is, you know, why I think I fell in love with it and that and the strategy aspect of it.
0: Yeah, that's a good story, man. I like how you you brought it back because I will say that uh, down at the Lake of the Ozarks, there's this gigantic, like uh, this gigantic cliff in southern Missouri or central Missouri, Mm -hmm. wherever the Lake of the Ozarks are. And we'd go down there um, every summer and do the boating and things, stuff like that. And uh, I was stone cold sober at the time. And I I jumped off this cliff and it was this, one of the biggest rushes to this day. You hit the mm-hmm. water, you come up and you're like, Oh my God, I just did that. So then for yeah. a while after that, I was jumping off bridges that were going over like highway bridges that were going, uh, over top nice. of rivers. Right. And I just, <laughs> like I just like, I looked like at the time it was a rush and I was doing it for the rush. Right. And, right. and, uh, and like, like you said, dude, right now, the only other thing that, Gets me there like that is bow hunting, man.
1: Oh yeah, it's. Nuts. I mean, it's like I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm getting the shakes now just talking about <laughs> it, man. It's like I'm like, it's like I'm jacked up, man. It's like I went out and put out cameras yesterday, kayaked mm-hmm. into a couple of like secluded little spots, you know what I mean? And just like it was crazy, man, because I walked into this one spot that I found this past winter scouting. and uh, and I assumed it was up against bedding cover and stuff. And uh, but just, you know, not didn't have it confirmed or whatever. I, mean, I didn't find any beds per se, um, but it was like this big primary scrape area and it was all up against side cover. And I was like, man, this feels like this feels like their little enclave. You know what I mean? I was like, I feel like this is like the spot and I walked all around it and spent like the day there or whatever. But you can't walk into it during the season because one, it's too thick, right? Because I went in and like february or march or whatever it was and everything's off and it's just like a cedar swamp thicket all the way until it finally opens up and you get like a little opening and then it kind of turns into the same thing on the other side and if you walk in from the east or the west i mean they'll know you're there long before you ever get there yeah in the north part of the property is kind of the same way and so when i scouted through it and hiked through it i was like man the only way to hunt this is going to be to buy a like with a kayak i was like you got to come in from the water And so I was like, I'm going to come back and put some cameras up. And there was just, like, these hammer primary scrape areas with licking branches and stuff. And I walked in there yesterday to put those cameras up, dude, and there were still four scrapes open with Mm -hmm. licking branches. Yeah, so – and, like, I mean, you know, people know that, like, you know, deer don't stop communicating after, you know, pre-rut and rut. They just communicate a lot less and for different reasons. And so when you come across, like, little hot spots like that, that means – deer are using it and they're bedded nearby. And I ended up jumping two deer out of there. Yeah. Um, whenever I walked in. So spidey senses were tingling. And then after that, I was like, I just want to go home and get my bow. <laughs> that was all I was thinking. I was like, I just want to come back here tomorrow. I don't want to hunt it. Cause I was like, I feel like if there's a good deer in here, I feel like I can kill it.
0: That's awesome, man. So, I love those feelings too. Cause I did the same thing on the, the piece of public that, uh, I scouted that I was scouting. Uh, and I cut a really big track. I followed it back and it, you just, you get this feeling like you're getting close to something. Yeah. And I said, I, I said, it's pretty cool. Cause I, I called my shot on camera and I was, I was doing this little uh, Instagram story or uh YouTube video. And, uh, I said, dude, I'm going to, I'm going to, I have a feeling I'm going to jump something out of here. I feel real close this track. I mean, if I was a, a buck, I'd be bedded in here. And sure enough, I ended up jumping this, this, uh, velvet buck. And, uh, it was, uh, it was pretty sweet to, uh, nice. be able to do that. And, and I think from a, from a hunting, I'm sure you, you can agree when I say this, but when you can walk into a timber or a, a property or an area and find where the deer are at, that's a, that's yeah. a really good feeling.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, it's cause this piece was new to me too, you know, where it's like, I I just was, I knew that the sign was laid down there and it's of course was like, you know, it looked like rut sign and that would be your first instinct, right? It would be right. like, Hey, this is, this is rut sign. So, and that was kind of what I was thinking when I was walking in was like, if I hunt this spot, it will be straight up like a pre-rut and a rut spot. And I got to do it like mid to like late October because I'm leaving like end of October and I'm going to Missouri for a week and then I'm in Ohio for a week. And so I, that would be the only time I really get to hunt in PA And, uh, and so it felt really good to go in there to know that those were still being used because I was like, okay, this changes the game now, because now this is actually, I just need to pay attention to the cameras and figure out what's in here and and how often it's being used and then make a game plan from, make a game plan from there. Um, but you know, I don't know, I'm stoked for that spot. It's, it it just, it was one of those things where I had a good feeling about it when I found it this off season. And then it just kind of all kind of came to fruition on that, you know, camera placement and you know, now the telltale will just be if there's something good in there or not, right. you know what I mean? Cause it could be a bunch of forkies running around making all that, sign, but, yeah. you know, yeah. we'll, uh, we'll see. You'll figure it out.
0: All right. Yeah. So, uh, we're going to wrap it up here, but, uh, before we leave, man, you got the, uh, you got the, uh, uh, truth from the stand podcast. And, uh, why don't you talk to us a little bit about what that's all about and, uh, where people can find it?
1: Yeah. Uh, it's truth from the stand podcast. Uh, you know, truth from the It's all the places you would typically find podcasts, YouTube. It's on YouTube as well. You know, what i basically, you know, focus on, I feel like the past probably like year, two years or whatever, I've found probably more of what my niche is or what I, what gets me excited. And that's DIY, you know, out of state public land hunting and anything related to it. Um, and so that's really what I focus a lot on um you know i 'm building a i 'm converg uh, uh converting a an old cargo trailer um into like a little public land domicile that I can take with me on these out of state hunts to have a place to stay so I'm kind of talking about that and chronically in that hopefully there'll be some videos that come out uh you know with that in the not so distant future and then I've got skull brew Coffee Company which is a coffee company that I started um to give back to conservation so we donate 10% of our profits to uh BHA QDMA uh and the Nature Conservancy and RMEF um and it's just something my wife and I started cuz we wanted to be able to give back more more consistently and you can check that out at skullbrew.com or skullbrewcoffee.com there you
0: go go man well hey let me be the uh first to wish you good luck this upcoming season man hopefully all your arrows connect
1: thanks man you too brother now good luck i'm looking forward to seeing you in michigan man i think you'll look good (laughs) in michigan
0: (laughs) i appreciate that because i'm gonna
1: need some luck yeah i got and once you get done with that man next year we can do pa you just let me know (laughs) i'll definitely try (laughs) all right brother thanks man for having me
0: and there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Huge shout out to Clint for hopping on and chit chatting with us today. Huge shout out to all of you, each and every one of you for downloading and listening to not only the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, but all the podcasts on the Sportsman's Nation podcast network. And lastly, huge shout out to the partners at the, at the, uh, all the, you know, the partners. I can't talk right now, but all the partners, you know, we have Ozonix wasp lone wolf the average conservationist and vortex optics please go out and support the companies that support this podcast because uh they make this possible straight up and uh i love you all be kind to others support your family support your friends uh give people help when they need help sacrifice if you can and uh man uh life is beautiful so celebrate it every day Have a good rest of your week, and we will talk to you next time.